Hey, thanks for being with us, everybody. We are going to get right into our show today, the Mendocino County Firesafe Radio Show, with our host, Scott Craddy. Are you with us there, Scott? I am. Good morning, Cobb. Good morning. And before we introduce our guests, I just want to highlight that support again, as I said, comes from our members. And I'll be breaking in a couple times here to give out some more information about the quiet drive going on. But for now, enjoy the show. Feel inspired about part of why we are driven by our donations and things uh, to bring you this content. So without further ado, Mendocino County... Fire Safe Council Director Scott Craddy, take it away. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in this morning. Um, I am the director of the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council, and our mission is to inform, empower, and mobilize to help you survive and thrive in a wildfire-prone environment. If you're in earshot of this radio station, you may well have moved here or you've chosen to stay here, at least in part, for the beauty, the nature, and the space. And you may or may not have known at the time you were making those choices that you were also moving into a wildfire-adapted environment, an environment involved with wildfire as part of its natural ecosystem. If it wasn't clear before, that is abundantly clear now. We're all now very aware of the need to prepare for wildfire, and terms like home hardening and defensible space have become common language, which are in large part code words for clearing vegetation, lots and lots of vegetation from around our homes and our roadways. So we have a conflict. To keep our homes and communities safe, we seem to need to cut away much of the beauty that holds us here and the vegetation that provides food and homes for the wildlife that lives here with us. Another potential problem is that unless you know what you're doing when you're doing that hacking and cutting away, you can sometimes be working against yourself. A healthy plant and a healthy landscape is more fire resilient than a damaged plant or a stressed landscape. You don't do yourself any favor in the long run and may make your home less fire safe if your clearing work leaves a weak or leaves weak or injured vegetation. To help you understand more about how to approach your defensible space clearing work in a way that leaves the landscape in the best possible shape, I'm pleased to introduce today's guests. We have with us Andrea Davis, co-president of the Sanhedrin chapter of the California Native Plant Society and a landscape designer specializing in sustainable landscape design, and Jim Zaroyans, instructor with the Mendocino College Agricultural and Natural Resources Department. Uh, and with that, I'm going to let them introduce themselves a little bit and tell you why they're interested in this work, and um, we'll start with Andrea. Andrea. Hi. Thank you for having me here. Um, my, I've been passionate about native plants for a long time, first identifying them and then incorporating them into gardens. I've had to rethink how I think about gardens since uh, we've become more aware of fire danger. And I think uh, in general, our public has to rethink their gardens. And I believe strongly that um, most of us moved here because of the beauty and the oak woodlands inland, the um, coastal uh, prairie, chaparral, and redwood forests um, over towards um, Mendocino, Fort Bragg area. And at the same time, we tend to move in and then change our whole environment and put 
palm trees and you know lawns in and photinia and other things that could be growing anywhere in the country so i would like us to as a culture in, embrace mendocino county's native flora and fauna and at the same time learn to live with it and maybe look historically at what and in, how indigenous peoples lived with it and what it might have looked like um you know hundreds of years ago great that's marvelous thank you andrea um jim could you tell us a bit about yourself yeah well i'm jim zarians and i teach at mendocino college i've been here for i don't know about 25 years and at the college been in the county for about 37 years and i'm a plant enthusiast or uh, all-around plant enthusiast plant nerd wherever you want to however however you like to term it and I definitely have uh, enthusiasm about native plants uh, uh inherent interest that continues to grow um i'm also on the cnps board and have had a few other uh side jobs here and there but you know, I just like Scott said, I, I'm one of those people that moved here a long time ago because of the beauty. I love the North Coast, California native. I just, you know, like this. I find myself where I've moved now, uh, 16 years ago, kind of the same thing. But I'm in a real, in the WUI, the wildland urban interface, which is uh, uh, in an area that's very highly prone to potential for wildland fires. Uh, since I moved in there, uh, the, that place where I live was built around 60, 65 years ago. And it had the typical landscaping back then, which is a lot like Andrea had mentioned. A lot of junipers, a lot of junipers, a lot of junipers. <laughs> and uh, some bamboo, some cypress, and way overplanted. I move into this place, and I'm giving this as an example because I, I think it relates to many people. We get there, we go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And we move there because we like all these trees, and suddenly we realize we're in a situation where this is not good, not good for our home or house. Um, so I guess kind of, Scott, maybe starting off, you know, you're asking about defensible space or mentioning that. I'm looking at this, okay, I only have an acre. Compared to some people that have lots of land, that's... Uh, um, not much, but still, it's a lot of work. So where do I start? I started with, well, next to the house, because that's the, the first area where the defensible space closest to the house, and then started working out. You know, since I've last oh, 10, 15, I guess 16 years, I've moved, removed probably about 35, 40 junipers, and some of those are tree size. Junipers, uh, as a rule, are, are, um, are extremely fire hazard, extreme fire hazard. They, they start easy. They burn hot. They have a lot of oils in them. Uh, and when they become tree size, it's uh, even more problematic. So some of the things about the native plants, when we think about, well, if we get rid of all these junipers and some of these other uh, perhaps uh, highly flammable plants that are in the wrong place, too close to the house or our structures, I, what can we replace them with? And Andrea is going to be, I think, talking about more, of, uh, a lot more about uh, some of the design, how we put some, some of the things in in the first uh, several feet near the house. But 
with the, with the native plants, you know, there, there's a lot of beauty that we, a lot of us, um, a lot of people overlook, and sometimes we don't see because we we look them in, uh, we treat them in the wrong wrong way, or we have them in the wrong place. They also give us um, provide food and habitat for insects and birds and a lot of the native uh, 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 fauna that we have uh, have around. And also, um, we have to remember that they're adapted to our native Mediterranean climate. And that means for us that are in limited water at times, they may be better off to survive uh, that kind of kind of habitat. With that, not all natives are good. There are some good and bad actors, but both of them need a little bit of encouragement. And just looking at what kind of encouragement would be, well, I think we look at the the defensible space. Let's, we're, I'm going to leave that first uh, five feet and talk more of the outer, the zone two, which is the, the 30 feet and maybe in the outer beyond that. Um, to maintain the, uh, the health of these plants and in our home, I guess the number one thing that we need to look at to keep these native plants growing well is and reduce the fire hazards, weed, weeds, weeds, which comes back to the maintenance issue that we're gonna be talking about. Um, maintaining the weeds, getting those out of there. Most of the weeds that we think of uh, in our minds that come, come to mind are the ones that dry up right away in June or, or May or even April on some of these dry years maybe. And those weeds are mostly Eurasian uh, exotics, you know, from Europe and Asia, and they're annuals. They come up, they, they grow real fast, they're adapted to that, and they sit there. So if a fire comes through, they burn real fast. It's their architecture pointing straight up allows the flames to grow up and then potentially grow into uh, the native plants. Hmm. So if we take that grass out of there or those weeds out, We've eliminated that part. But now let's go back up into some of those native shrubs that we have. What can we do there? Just, I'm going to break in for a second. Um, I, we're, you're covering a ton of great material, but I want to sort of step back and, and put a little bit of a frame around it. Um, so, and as you pointed out, it is, um, you know, Absolutely true. You know, the, the big question for the day is, do you have to make things a moonscape for them to be fire safe? I think the answer we're going to get to is no, uh, with some exceptions. The exception, as Jim pointed out, is those first five feet. Uh, the first five feet around your house are where embers are going to catch that are blowing in a wildfire. And in fact, you do want to make those first five feet as completely flame proof as possible. So to the extent possible, you don't want to have any vegetation there. Um, and as you step out, uh, you want it to be then not a moonscape from there, but park-like and open and clean. And you want to, as Jim was getting to, pick the right things to be in there. Um, and you want to overall preserve, I believe, as much of the native landscape as possible when you're doing that. And you know, with that, so and Jim hinted at a lot of this, if we can just go a little bit into why, just so people understand why they want to think about preserving the native landscape um, as, they're, as, they're, as they're beginning to clear things out from their house outward. 
Andrea, did you want to? Um, well, I'll address it and then maybe go into the first five feet as well. Um, so uh, native plants and native insects evolve together. And native plants and native insects are the basis of our um, of our ecology, of our um, uh, the food chain. And you can't... Uh, and, and, uh, like a swallowtail butterfly can't just come and land on a crepe myrtle or um, a palm tree or that turf grass or the, you know, the generic plants that we see around um, that came from Eurasia, sometimes from the East Coast or farther away in the United States, but many of these plants are from Europe or Asia, and our weeds are as well. Um, and one of the reasons that sometimes these plants escape into the um, wilds like pompous grass is because they don't have any native predators. They don't have insects that eat them. And we want um, our plants eaten by insects. That may sound counterintuitive, but usually it's not even noticeable. And sometimes it's actually attractive and fun, like red buds. If you look closely, you'll usually see these semicircular um, cut marks on them that are really kind of attractive that the leaf cutter bees make for their um, for their homes or for their nests. And um, so when there is like a, a influx of insects with native plants, usually it comes and it goes before you can do anything about it. You don't need to use any insecticides. In fact, we recommend that you don't use in any pesticides or insecticides in your garden. It's really sad when people bring in pollinator plants and that they bought at some place that, that uses neonicotinoids or other um, persistent pesticides on them and their insect die. Um, so big picture, um, if we want to have a healthy environment, if we want to continue to see birds and butterflies and um, the things that eat those, uh, we, we need native plants. Um, did that answer the question well enough? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great answer and great framework. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I know we're going to get to references later, but I would really refer people to uh, a book called Bringing Nature Home. And um, if they don't want to read a whole book, maybe just a simple article called The Chickadee's Guide to Gardening. And th these are by Douglas Pelame, who has been um, uh, in the forefront of this uh, uh idea that we need native plants and we need native plants in our gardens um, to sustain native um, native insects, native birds, and all our native fauna. Yep, and, it, and um, it goes all the way through the ecosystem. I mean, from soil stability to water flow, I, when, you, when you start sort of bringing in things that weren't there, uh, you, you change a whole cascade of things that may ultimately make your place more vulnerable as it allows weeds in right. that are more flammable so um yeah so. yeah uh, jim was alluding to that our native plants well he mentioned there's they're not always good players well i think it's also right plant in the right place too so i don't think there are any bad native plants but they may not be in the right place um um sorry i forgot <laughs> my thought i'll go back to the first five feet <laughs> uh, when you think about that first five feet, it, it, it's true that 
um, most sources recommend nothing there. Um, but it's really a challenge because nothing invites a lot of those native grasses or non-native grasses and ex other exotic weeds that Jim mentioned. And it's hard to keep those under control without anything else there. Um, some sources actually recommend very low growing things. Um, and we do have some natives like yerba buena that grows in the shade or maybe strawberries. And definitely if, where you're gonna spend the most of your water in your garden should be in that closest area to your house. You know, that um, either the first five feet if you have any plants there or the next um, 30 feet. But try, most of us have water restraints, but use that water wisely and keep things watered well next to your house. And the nice thing about plants that are adapted to Mediterranean climates is they don't have the high water needs um, like a hydrangea, which is a typical foundation plant, which looks really lush, but if you can't water it enough it, and it dries out, then that defeats the fire safety purpose. Um, I'm open if anyone has ideas about that first five feet for design. It, it is really a challenge and I've talked to other um, designers and it seems like there's not a lot of good ideas. If you're first planning your garden, you could put your path there, um, which is already a hardscape and protective. Um, a lot of people put stone there. Stone is not necessarily, it, it can look really nice. And um, I think stone with maybe sneaking a few low-growing succulents in there might be nice. Uh, but, um, but it's not really a sustainable alternative because that stone is being taken from some riverbed or gravel bed somewhere and hauled to some place where you're picking it up and bringing it over. Um, so I think uh, pathways are more of a sustainable design idea because you you are going to need a path around your house already um thinking about if you do have even any low growing plants in that first five feet where your windows are because windows are very susceptible to fire and you don't want any plants that are going to be burning next to a window um, it's really hard for us that want our lemon tree growing on the south side of the house to get that <laughs> to figure out where else we're going to put it that's going to be safe. I'm not a big fan of leaf blowers, but one of the best places to use a leaf blower is right next to your house and in your gutters because any leaves tend to accumulate against the wall of the house. And, it, you know, going back to, you know, hygiene is so important and figuring out how you're going to manage that first five feet to keep it clean a leaf blower works really well to get um small debris and leaves out of that area oh okay so oh, i'm gonna let Cobb break in for a second hey just for a moment everybody you're tuned to kzyx um as scott said my name's Cobb. i'm here engineering in the studio for the radio station i want to let you all know uh, before we reintroduce our guests that the KZYX Spring Drive is going on right now, the quiet drive, as we say. And if you're enjoying this program, we want to recognize it's a partnership uh, between KZYX and the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council. The number to call is 895-2324, gets you to the office. And uh, if you're not a member, uh, think about that one. 
and maybe you can talk to somebody at the office here about becoming a member. Uh, the station certainly relies on your support to keep it going, and so we're just breaking into some of our public affairs programs and so forth during these days to request that uh, you think about what you have available and think about what this means to you as a resource um, in terms of it, with today's context, you know, fire safety and emergency safety and that kind of thing. Uh, without further ado, uh, you're listening to the Fire Safe radio show. And our guests today are Jim Zeroyans uh, from the Mendocino College Agricultural Department and Andrea Davis from the Sanhedrin chapter of the Native Plant Society. And I'm going to turn it back over to our host, Mendocino County Fire Safe Council Director Scott Craddy. Thanks. Okay. And so we've covered sort of where we don't want plants around the house and we've covered that we want to preserve the natural ecosystem as much as possible and I want to start sort of marching outward from the house and that involves starting with we're going to start cutting things so step one is going to be to know something about how how and where to cut things so you're going to do your pruning in a way that leaves your plants healthy uh, and that doesn't take too much uh, and that cuts in the right places. And for that, um, I'd like to turn to Jim, because um, Jim, Jim's done a great video for us that's on our website that we'll, we'll get to that covers some of that. But um, can you talk us through the basics about how to, how to start cutting when you go to start cutting, Jim? Sure, Scott. Um, I guess you got to first look and say, okay, is this uh, what kind of plant type am I looking at? And is it a shrub, a tree? Is it a subshrub, ground cover? Each of those have different maintenance and cutting type of, of actions. Starting with the easiest or the softest, the grasses are perennial grasses that we may, may be native or non-native that are used in landscape. These are ones that come back every year. They need to be uh, either cut down in the winter but during the growing season, we can also do a process called combing. Uh, that's just like it sounds. You take a leaf rake and you comb them, and it'll take most of the dry leaves out of there, thereby reducing the fire hazard on, on something like that. Uh, as we move up to the shrubs, one of the, the big thing not to do is shearing them. It's, it kind of comes out of the shearing, comes out of originally out of Europe and the you know, 18th, 17th century formal gardens, but after World War II, it kind of became the thing that everybody did, probably with all the junipers that everybody was planting in their yards. And shearing is a process of just cutting everything square or round or in these, uh, what's called a bunch of heading cuts. Each of those cuts, and they're, when you shear a, a large uh, shrub, there may be thousands of those cuts, each one produces two or three more little branches coming out. And what happens eventually, they get thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. Thinner branches will catch fire much more easily than something that is thick. Uh, on top of that, it creates a lot of dead wood on the inside of, of these shrubs. And these shrubs may be good native shrubs as well. So you're shearing them, you're creating uh, dead material inside that and smaller material inside that can catch fire more easily. So that is really one thing you want to um, refrain from if at all possible. 
Um, when, um, uh, what would you want to do there? Well, if you have something that has been sheared for years and years, before you cut it back or take big chunks out to thin it out to make it look uh, open inside to renew the growth or cut it all the way down to get new growth, you have to make sure that that shrub is one that will grow back. Um, talking to people at the nursery or other places, uh, Googling that plant, once you identify that plant, you can see if it will regenerate. If you cut a lot of our manzanitas down, that is most of the manzanitas that we have in the county, at least inland Mendocino County, unless you go up to about 2,000 feet, we have a species that will regenerate. Uh, if you cut the rest of ours down, you will absolutely, you'll kill them. That'll be the end of the plant. Beauty or not is gone. Um, so to uh, what would you do on a plant like that? Gee, you know, I want to get that plant. I want to reduce the fire hazard on something like manzanita. You can take a plant like manzanita and thin it from the bottom up, removing all the any dead wood and small twiggy wood. And manzanitas will develop a lot of dead wood on the inside because they, they shade themselves out. Uh, however, if you have something like a native coffee berry or... Uh, or a coyote brush, bush, those, those two plants can be taken all the way to the ground and they will renew themselves. But if, if you have a coffee berry that is severely drought stressed or other things, you need to use caution on doing that because, you know, uh, it's, they have to, they're regenerating themselves. They're going to use a lot of the energy they have in their roots to do that. And that new growth will be lowered to the ground. It will also be, uh, so if it's a too, too tall of a shrub and you want to reduce the height, that can be done. Again, you have to know what that plant is. But right now I'm just talking about those ones that can regenerate. And the examples I gave were cowdy brush and, and California coffee berry, commonly found in trade, commonly found native in our county. And they're good for all sorts of insects and, and other wildlife. Uh, they're good landscaping plants as well. So moving from there uh, to larger shrubs, um, thinning them out. And on the, the, the um, video that uh, Scott mentioned on, the, uh, on uh, his uh, uh, website, uh, there are, I have some pictures on there, some manzanitas that have been cleaned up underneath and then allowed to have the top. Now, there, this is for not for... All in the wildland, this is for in our garden area, in that outer 30 feet or, or up to uh, that 100 feet area. Uh, or along the roadside where, you know, trying to reduce the fire hazard. The small stuff, the dead stuff uh, is what's going to catch fire the quickest. Um, and then when we get to the trees, th there are, we can go on from that in, in a little bit. I think um, a lot of people have the misconception that evergreen shrubs are not as flammable. And I think frequently the reason that they can be flammable is what you just mentioned, Jim, is that they develop, you know, things like ivy can be very flammable. And it's because, again, of the hygiene of people not going in and cleaning out all that dead wood that happens. And so on the surface, you're looking at something nice and green. But underneath that, there's a big twiggy fire hazard. 
You're, you're right. And there's, there's other plants that um, are good plants. They may be evergreen or not, but they have, they built, may build up a bunch of uh, leathery leaves that are dead on the bottom of the plant or drop them. And so that comes back to the maintenance of raking those out because that's going to be a, a source of ignition right there. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I, the general rules I'm kind of hearing here are you want things that are low to the ground, moist, well-maintained, and cleaned out. So that's the kind of one and choice. Be careful with moist, especially when you're talking about our Mediterranean plants. They don't, they don't need as much water. But if right. you give them too much water, they're going to be dead or dying, and then you're going to have a fire. Yeah, it's a great so you collection. You have to pick the right plants that you want moist. So as I, I was saying, more water closer to the house, but you also want to pick plants that can tolerate that. Great. So healthy. And then if bigger things, uh, we want to make sure they're not low to the ground. So that, that manzanita uh, that you've decided to keep, uh, so you want to make sure they're not too close to each other. You want to have space between things so that things aren't catching one another on fire if, if fire comes in. And you want to make sure that the ground is not catching the bigger things that you're keeping in your landscape. So you want to train those manzanitas, as Jim was saying, and prune them up from the bottom so that they don't have a lot of dead fuel or fuel that's near the ground and, and likely to catch. Right. Cal Fire and other sites have good um, information about exact um, spacing if people want that. But I try to think of um, our pictures of oak savanna, what that used to look like with big valley oaks or um, other um, oaks, depending on where you were, with low plants under that. And that was probably because of... Um, prescribed either natural burns or burns by indigenous peoples that took up, that limbed up just like what Jim is saying and also removed a lot of the lower vegetation. And the same old redwood forests probably experienced the same thing where you have higher limbs in the trees and lower vegetation with not much in that in-between space. Yeah, the, um, the CAL FIRE rule of thumb for folks that are looking at it, um, and I think this is fairly wide, is that you want to have, um, if you have plants growing under your trees or large shrubs, you want to have a, um, you don't want to have any limbs that aren't more than three times the height of what's growing under it. So if you've got something that's um, one foot tall on the ground, uh, you want to make sure that the first limb above that is at least uh, three more feet above that, so four feet off the ground. Um, and there's a similar rules for spacing between the things. So uh, if you want to, you want to again not have things that are so close. You want to leave places for the for the birds to hide, uh, but you want to have things that aren't so close that they're catching one another on fire. So you want to have um, a space between, uh, if you have bushes, you want to have a space between them that's at least two times the height of the bush. So if you've got a two-foot bush, you don't want to have the next bush more than six feet close to that. And that's on a level ground. Um, and just like you think that, you know, water, water flows rapidly downhill, well, fire is opposite, flows rapidly uphill. Uh, so if you're on a slope, those distances increase. Um, if you've got a 20% slope, 
then you need a four times the height distance between things. Uh, and if it's a 30% or a, a steeper slope, then you want to have a six times the height difference. So um, it's all contextual, and hopefully we'll have a chance right. to, to get into that. And and also you can cluster these in islands, you know, like you could have your shrubs closer together, but then have that group of shrubs, you know, spaced from another similar group of shrubs. Great point. Um, and I'd like to get back to finishing sort of up on the trimming and pruning. Um, Jim, if you could get us back to, so when you're, you've got your trees and you're, you're doing that limbing up, mm -hmm. um, you know, how and how and where do you cut those? Well, first, if you're trying to get, we're limbing up to reduce the likelihood of any ground fires getting up to the canopy. Scott already talked about, covered the, the heights. If you have shrubs underneath there, um, best if you don't, but a cow fire has a general thing of 10 feet, limbing them up. Now, if your tree is only 20 feet tall, you're not going to want to limb up 10 feet. The rule of thumb is no more than 30% uh, of the total height of the tree. Of course, if you have a Douglas fir and it's 100 feet tall, well, you're not going to have to worry about <laughs> going up too high on that. Um, when we cut the trees or, or, or a large shrub, the one thing we don't want to do is top it. Anybody that's been by the school and to the greenhouse with the sales know there's a big sign or a poster outside there that's been there for a couple decades that says, do not top trees. When you top a tree, it causes two things will happen. And topping is cutting uh, indiscriminate cutting in the middle of the branch. And that's not the way to lower the height of the tree, not, not the way to properly cut it. When you do that, you're going to get one of two things. Either that, that branch will rot back and then you have a new hazard. If it rots back, there's the potential of that branch falling off and falling down in a windstorm or in a, in a fire. If it's over a road, it can block the road. If it's over where you park, on your house, you have other issues there. Um, the other thing that can happen is you can get a cluster of shoots, a cluster of uh, branches that will come off the end of that branch, which is common on some of the oaks. And we think of oaks as being really strong wood, but when they, when they're, they're, the way they're fastened when they come out as, as those shoots right there, they're very weakly fastened. And they can blow off and often do, and it may be 10 years down the line or longer, but when they're 10 years down the line, if one of those shoots survives and gets big enough, that's a big branch that's falling down there. Uh, it also... Uh, what we where we want to cut on the tree is try to do look for what was termed the branch crotch, and that's where two branches come together, and then there's a swollen area there called a uh, branch collar, and that collar just like the collar on your shirt around your neck. If you're going to cut that, well, you want to cut your head off, but if you're going to cut the uh, branch off, you're going to look for that collar, and you want to stay outside that collar. Never cut in to the branch collar. The reason is if you cut in the branch collar, it will impede the healing of that branch. It, uh, that branch collar grows. It has a type of tissue that will grow and heal that. It'll scab over. It also has um, 
will release, uh, produce uh, chemicals that will help reduce the rot. And um, that's kind of it in a, in a nutshell over the radio here, Scott. Uh, they can look at the video or they can always uh, uh, seek other resources for additional, more specific information. Right, that is one that can use some visuals. Andre, did you have something you wanted to add? Well, just that Jim teaches an excellent pruning class every winter, um, like it's a short-term class. Well, thanks for the plug. I wasn't uh, doing it for that, but yeah, great, sure. <laughs> there you go. And I wanted to circle back to um, what to cut down and what not to cut down. So as you're thinning and spacing, um, you know, there are, this is one of the things we're sort of trying to learn with, with road clearing and maintenance. There's some things that when you cut them down, you're really not doing yourself a favor in the long run because some things are going to re-sprout and you're going to take what could have been a tall, beautiful uh, uh, tree or, or some other piece of native vegetation and you're going to turn it into something that re-sprouts as a bunch of weak, bushy things that are more likely uh, to catch fire in the future. Can, can, Either of you give us some guidance about, you know, how to, how to, when you're selecting, once you're thinning out, what do you leave so that it becomes strong and more fire safe in the long run? Uh, and what do you avoid cutting down so that it doesn't become worse? Well, I think one point we have to make is that it's not a one-time thing. None of this is a one-time thing. Um, unless you want to live in a condo with a homeowners association that's going to take care of this for you you're stuck with it forever. You know, as a community, larger community and as a homeowner, this is an ongoing thing. Leaves are going to continue to fall that you have to get out of your gutters. The shrubs are going to continue to sprout. Your perennials will have to be cut down. You have to comb your garden every year, like, like Jim was talking about. It's, it's ongoing. And I think the concept of shaded fuel breaks is something that we need to keep referring to because a lot of times that shade will suppress a lot of the growth below it. So if we take care of those larger trees and have a shaded canopy, it will control somewhat what grows underneath it. And then I know Jim has better more information. Wait. You know, hey, I'll just take a moment to break in there. Uh, we're listening to Casey Wax, everybody. My name's Cobb. And I just want to put out there, if you're enjoying the program today, uh, it's the quiet drive here at KZYX. And the number to call for the studio is 707-895-2324. 895-2324. Alternatively, you can go on the web to the KZYX website. Just search for it. If you enjoy this show, if you've enjoyed previous shows, um, and you use this station for any of your information needs, uh, consider becoming a member if you already are a member then thank you so much because that's what keeps this station available for these discussions and it's just really important we are unable to do a typical pledge drive due to the shelter protocols so really relying on you out there listening to encourage yourself encourage those around you to participate and maybe give a call out uh, to the station here with that, I'm going to turn it back over to the Mendocino County FireSafe Radio with our host, the director of the Mendocino County FireSafe Council, Scott Craddy, and our guests today uh, talking about uh, pruning and plants, native plants around our houses, are Jim Zeroyans from the Mendocino College Egg Department 
and Andrea Davis from the Sanhedrin Chapter of the California Native Plant Society. Thanks, everyone. And I think Jim was just about to jump in with some, some guidance about what to, what to hack down and what not to hack down. All right, hack. Ooh, bad word. <laughs> Prune properly, Scott. Uh, but yeah, what, 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 what he's talking about is what, what plants are we going to remove? You know, and yeah, there will be times when we have to remove plants. So which ones do you, do you choose? Well, certainly there's a list of woody plants that are not native, that are weedy, that are fire prone, such as all the brooms or you people on the coast, if you're around Casper or even... Uh, um, more inland on Greenfield, there are patches of a plant called gorse. Both of these are from Europe and very, very prone to fire, lots of fast-growing, lots of dead material. The, the brooms often grow along the roads. They will grow in, in our, our, our yards and other places. They have pretty yellow flowers. They're weedy. They're, yeah, there's a, there's, there's a good weed to wage war on. So pull those things out, get them out of there. That's the first thing. Uh, sometimes you get, you're looking at, you have a, a bunch of, of plants and you're going, well, I need to thin these out. Which ones do I keep? You know, well, you know, that part of that's uh, uh, personal choice. The other part is going to be, okay, what's going to be what's native? What's going to be uh, less flammable? Okay, are they healthy? Or how much dead uh, brown dry material do they have in there? You know, uh, that's not a you know that would be a negative. Are they uh, uh, well uh, healthy living? You know, then we can can we prune those up and and keep some of those? You know, those are uh, are things that might um, might impact it. Um, Scott, I'm trying to remember what your question was, so I keep on track here. Uh, we we were talking about how you're when you're deciding which things to cut down to the ground and which things not. So, uh, for example, um, right. Uh, one thing to think about might be oaks. Yeah. Well, uh, some of the oaks, especially the live oaks, will readily regenerate from sprouts. Now, when they do that, you're taking what could have been a a, a tree. And you're creating um, a cluster of kind of bush. And when you get that, there may be eventually three stems coming up there and a bunch of them will start to die out. And, you know, over time, it may be left with two or three, but we're talking that may be a, a couple decades down the road. Meantime, you have all these small twiggy dead branches in there close to the ground, often mixed with uh, the weedy grasses and... Um, and that may uh, is going to potentially promote the uh, or will increase the uh, flammability of that situation. Um, in our yards, often we have a bunch of plants that we had there, and that's why we moved there because those plants may have given us given us screens to our neighbors. Um, or the junk pile next door, or uh, our own junk pile, or whatever it may be. And now we're faced with, oh, wow, this, this screen that we have, this great big 30-foot uh, hedge of, uh, of cluster of plants, we have to thin out. How do we go about it? You know, well, think about where you're sitting. You want to maintain your, 
your visual screen, and maybe you could do it with plants, like Scott said, that were well-spaced. So you have two that are, you know, 50 feet out, and then you have another one that is uh, maybe 30 feet out. They got the space in between there, but from your private area, the area that you may want to sit out and have your coffee or or a glass of wine or water or read a book or whatever and, and have that quiet space, um, you can still maintain it. Just have those little screens instead of one great big contiguous screen. What you've done then is, by, is break it up and break that flow of the fire just run all the way through, the potential for it to run all the way through. So which ones do you select out of there? Go back to what we just said, your personal choice, the health of the plant, and the plant species. And we want to plug oaks. Oaks are generally considered to be um, less fire prone and they are a keystone species. They support hundreds of other species. Um, they're uh, probably our best butterfly and moth um, caterpillars uh, hosts, as well as you know everything from lichen to certain, you know, many of our native birds are totally dependent on oaks. Um, many of our species are totally dependent on acorns. So if I've seen places where there is photinia and pines and oaks and people cut out the oaks, um, made partly sometimes because they're deciduous. Sometimes they think they're dead. But deciduous means that there's no leaves in the winter, but it's still alive. And from a fire safety standard, um, that's actually usually a good thing because you have new growth every year rather than that old twiggy growth. But, um, you know, again, plant hygiene. I would always, I would always try to keep those oaks, but limb up when you have to. And sometimes you have to go in and remove dead and dying wood carefully uh, for the guidelines as Jim brought up. Right. You know, yeah. the, uh, Ahead, uh, the, the live oaks, um, especially in our area, are very real fast growing. It brings it back the, uh, uh, the point of these are great trees, like Andrew was saying, for a whole bunch of, of uh, habitat and food for a whole bunch of things. But at the same time, because they are relatively fast growing, they tend to sag. So that increases uh, the maintenance, the annual maintenance that you have to do. So you just, you know, just doing it once, like has been said here, isn't going to end everything. You have to go back in and do continual maintenance. So you got this tree that's sagging. How do you deal with that? You just go and uh, take that hedger and zzz, right across the bottom. And uh, no, you're going to go in there and look for that branch cross where the two branches come together. Off from the underside of those trees, they produce in the shade, they will die out. So you get, they will produce a lot of dead wood. Uh, and there's easily broken. Some of that you don't even have to cut out. You can just hit it with a, uh, with a pole and it'll pop out of there. Pole saws are real useful for any of us that live in the in the area. Um, pole saws, um, Corona makes a nice one, uh, inexpensive, I mean inexpensive, relatively inexpensive for around $100. If you get the, the Arborist one, then you're gonna be paying around $350 for that set. But uh, those, uh, they'll keep you off the ladder, keep you healthy, keep you safe, you won't fall. And they allow you to reach up and get a lot of, uh, a lot of things that you couldn't normally reach. Great. Um, 
One thing we haven't gotten to yet that is certainly I'm, uh, the, uh, the thing in demand uh, when talking about landscape tends to be plant lists. Uh, and people are always looking for guidance about what to, what to put in. A um, big piece of that, of course, is contextual. So it depends on exactly what kind of landscape you're in uh, and how to know that. Um, and I'm wondering, though, if we could just move through a couple of the basic landscapes around here. And we've touched on uh, oak woodlands a fair bit, so maybe we'll start someplace else. Um, and see if we can get some pointers. Um, and let's maybe start in the coast and move in. If you're in a, in a coastal area, are there um, any particular good resources or plant choices that you'd suggest for people as they're looking at what to, what to keep and what to put in? Um, well, one wonderful resource from the Native Plant Society is Calscape, and that site keeps expanding. Uh, you can put in your zip code and it'll give you a list of plants that grows there. You can narrow that down now to what type of garden you want or if you want easy plants. There's lists of uh, if you want vines or succulents, etc. They have lots of different ways to categorize it. They list, for most plants now, they list what, uh, what butterflies and caterpillars they support as well. If you see a butterfly in your neighborhood and wonder what it's eating, like recently uh, I saw a bunch of California tortoise shells and I looked them up on Calscape and found out they're dependent on Ceanothus. Ceanothus we have throughout the county in different species and it's it's felt to be a very fire resistant. Nothing is fireproof, uh, it's a fire resistant species. Um, I like, um, Lost Politas Nursery has a very broad website. You can spend a lot of time there on your computer looking at their site. And um, one of the founders of the nursery was also a volunteer fireman. And he went around did his own experiment where he just tried to light all the plants on fire. <laughs> and he gives how many seconds it took to ignition and other comments like whether it was well watered. And he's going through native plants because that's his specialty. I also have used uh, uh, Fire Safe Marin um, or Marin Fire Safe, something like that. But right now that website is down. But overall, everyone will tell you that's knowledgeable in this field. It's more about hygiene and you know, right plant, right place. Any plant can burn. Well, all plants will burn under you know, a hot enough situation. And a plant that is generally considered more um, flammable, but is very well cared for and well watered, etc., may not burn nearly as fast as a plant that is considered less flammable, but is diseased, dying, not maintained correctly. I have a question. This is Cobb in the studio. I just wonder, Andrew, could you go back in and expand more on what you said when you're talking with the Ceanothus and beyond? You mentioned that concept of being uh, not 100% flame resistant, but more fire resistant. Uh, some plants generally, like uh, early on, Jim was talking about the annual grasses and how 
they have an upright pattern they're very fine um, and in that case they dry out every year too but things like um, uh, well I don't know lavender and rosemary I keep hearing different things but I'll use them as an example because they have the kind of leaves I'm thinking oily plants with fine well the cypress and the juniper would be great examples um, and what is, Jim they call the Italian cypress a something rocket because I guess when they go up in flame they're like like a huge Roman candle Roman candle okay <laughs> um, and so those are examples of plants that are really oily and that have very fine leaves and are very flammable yeah I think it comes back Andrea like you're saying one, one thing I want to caution everybody on there's some of the website uh, lists that are out there the, some say they'll say resistant. Resistant may be ecologically resistant. That is, they they they're they've adapted to that. They can burn and then regenerate. But we're looking at or talking about ones here, referring to ones that will resist uh, that ignition, that first part of catching fire. Like Andrew said, a couple rules of thumb: there are any of these plants may be good or bad around the house, its location, how we treat them, how dense, as Scott was saying, they are together. Uh, dry, dead, and dead leaves or twigs are bad. Dry, leathery leaves are, you know, these are things that are, may increase the flammability. Abundant, dense foliage, high resin or terpenes or, or oils. Um, she mentioned that, that uh, rosemary and lavenders are found in both. And down south, they say they're okay, the shorter ones, the shorter rosemaries, further away from the house. And that's why they're saying, because they also hold the hillside in a very drought tolerant. So I, that, that was one thing that boggled my mind originally, and um, you know, or was confusing originally. Uh, lots of dead, dead leaves underneath the plant. That gets back to the maintenance. We need to get those out. Shaggy or rough or peeling bark. And that comes back to things like uh, eucalyptus. Not much place for eucalyptus. Needles, needle-like or very fine leaves. Uh, Right there is a juniper as a prime example. We also have some of our Australian uh, uh, natives that we like as uh, ornamentals, but they are fire prone and have uh, evolved in a fire prone uh, 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 situation down there. Um, and then foliage with low moisture. So that's probably the number one. If we can, for our, some of our natives that can tolerate it, such as the sages, if you give them periodic deep waterings during the summer, that will increase their, um, the, uh, the water content of their foliage. That will greatly reduce uh, the amount of uh, fire uh, uh, potential, the, the, the flammability of them. Also, pruning during the season on all these are natives that tend to go dormant during the season. If they go dormant during the summer, like the, a lot of the salvias, the sages, where they get the dead flower, flower stems, we want to go back in and prune those off when they're, when they're, flower, when they're done flowering. <laughs> Enjoy the flowers and then prune them off. And that, will, that combined with the other. The last one, Scott, was uh, I know you mentioned about mulch. Um, mulch I, is, is a, a double-edged sword. It's great. It keeps the plants hydrated, keeps the weeds down. If you're going to use mulch, try to get bigger chips, bigger bigger pieces, not the little tiny wood chips. Not gorilla uh, hair. And what's that? Avoid gorilla hair. Avoid, avoid gorilla, gorilla hair. Bark. Avoid well. anything that's dyed. There's a bunch of stuff to avoid. We'll and then, and um, and then pull back from the plant a little bit. You know, we don't want it right next to the plant because if it does 
catch fire. The, the flames won't be tall, but there we're talking six, eight inches at the most maybe. But if we keep it away from the plant, then those plants won't, will be less likely to catch fire. Cool. All right. And it looks like Cobb needs to break in. And I'd like to, if we have a minute to, oh, let's do some resources quickly. I know. So Andrea, um, let's make sure people know how to get in touch with, with further questions and any particular um, resources we haven't mentioned, like the Sanhedrin right. Native Plant Society. CNPS, great information on Oak ID and some plant lists. Kate Marion Child has some plant lists um, for, with beneficial insects and natives. Uh, Sonoma um, Master Gardeners, we have a local Master Gardeners, which is great. I'm a Master Gardener, but we don't have as many people and as many resources and as a robust a website. Um, I think those are the main things. Dorothy King Young on the coast. Yes. Um, and I mentioned fire safe Marin. Our own Mendocino County Fire Safe Council has, uh, uh, has some information. Um, Sonoma Resilient Landscapes. Um, I mentioned Los Politas Nursery. Uh, and have fun. I, I Google things in several spots, that, like if I'm concerned about a certain plant, and just kind of try to digest all the information. Right. Yeah, there's, a, I think we're going to have to throw up a little link on our webpage with some of these resources because oh, there's a lot. The California Native Plant, our local Sanhedrin chapter, the California Native Plant Society, or I have my email is um, wrecodesign at gmail.com for wild rose ecodesign. Great. It looks like we're about out. So, Jim, if you got a quick summary or I was just going to say that if they want to get a hold of me, they can get a hold of me at Mendocino College. Uh, my email is J. And actually, I think, do you want to post that, Cobb or, or uh, Scott? Anyway, it's J-X-E-R-O-G-E-A, and then at Mendocino.edu. Or you can simply call uh, 468 um, what is it? I never call myself. 468-3218. 468-3218. And leave a message at that phone, and I'll uh, make sure to get back to you within uh, about two days. And Jim is one of my main resources for just about everything. <laughs> yeah, trouble. <laughs> All right. Looks like we're about out, I think, or, or, or out. I want to thank you both. Tons of great information. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Mendocino County Fire Safe Radio. We'll have this up on our Mendocino, our firesafemendocino.org website within a couple of days. Uh, and we'll toss in some, some supporting links to go with it. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.